Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Devlina Chakraborty. And often... Wars are kicked off by big events or complex organized efforts. You know, somebody is assassinated, a bomb is dropped on an area. But other times, the the start of a war could be more subtle. It can be kicked off by a simple gesture that gets things rolling. Yeah, and that's definitely the case with our subject today, Honoheke's Rebellion. Um, it's also known as the Northern War or the Flagstaff War. And we're going to find out later why that name is very appropriate. But like you said, it was something tiny, it seemed, that kicked off this series of skirmishes. Absolutely. And all of these skirmishes, as you call them, took place in northern New Zealand from 1845 to 1846. And they occurred between the indigenous people, who are called the Maori, and the British settlers there. And there were a few interesting things about this particular war. For one thing, they occurred because of disagreements over land. That was kind of at the root of it. They were also interesting because the battles, they not only pitted Maori against British, but also Maori against Maori in some instances. And they also included these kind of random acts of kindness or civility, so to speak. Yeah, there's a few heartwarming moments that we're going to talk about in these skirmishes. But the person who's credited with starting all of this, starting these skirmishes, was a guy named Honoheke. And he's a really interesting character, I'd say. Yes, he's a blend of rebellious, scrappy behavior, a warrior. And on the other hand, he's also shrewd and almost at times compassionate. His actions and decisions are at the heart of the story. So we'll start by taking a closer look at him. Okay, so he was born Honoheke Pukai in 1810 on New Zealand's North Island, and his major tribal affiliation was with the Ingapui tribe, um, even though he had a few other connections to other Maori tribes. Um, and I guess we should give you guys a little background on the Maori. We have an article about them, so you could read about their whole history, but just a little background information. They're people of Polynesian descent, and they're said to have migrated to New Zealand from other islands in Polynesia, but they also have a pretty neat legend. They do. The legend says that they came to New Zealand on seven canoes from a place called Hawaiiki. And Hawaiiki is an interesting place because some people, some people just assume that it's a mythical place that the Maori are said to have originated from, but there are some other people who think it might have been an actual island in Polynesia or even part of New Zealand. But whether you think it's a real place or not, the Maori have been in New Zealand since about AD 1000, so. They go way back. They go way back. And uh, when Hanaheke was young, he lived with and was educated by Christian missionaries. So this is where uh, this is where our story takes a turn a little bit. Uh, he attended the Kerikeri Missionary School in 1824 and 1825. And even though he was a really rambunctious, mischievous young boy, he liked the missionaries. He got along well with them. And one in particular, a guy named Reverend Henry Williams, became something of a father figure for him. Yeah, they kept in contact 
contact even after Hanaheke was no longer living with them. But Hanaheke was definitely influenced by this encounter. He ended up converting to Christianity. He was baptized. He learned the scriptures through and through. And this becomes significant in our story later. So just remember that aspect of it. Despite these Christian influences, though, Hanaheke still remained a warrior. He participated in the intertribal wars in the 1830s, and he really distinguished himself in battle. So by the time the 1840s rolled around, Honaheke had really established his skill, and he's one of the leading chiefs of the Ingapui tribe. And it's also around this time that the British government really started to move in, and that was the way it worked a lot of the times. The missionaries would come in first, make the first contact, and then um, the imperial advance would follow. Yeah, I saw it referred to one time as them being the shock troopers of the imperial <laughs> movement. Yeah, exactly, and that's definitely how it was with Honeheke. So the British governor, William Hobson, showed up and brought with him a new treaty, and the treaty, the Treaty of Waitangi, seemed like it wasn't going to be a terrible deal for the Maori. It was a pact between them and the British, and it claimed to protect Maori rights, including their land interests, and grant them the full rights as British subjects in exchange for their accepting British sovereignty. Yeah, sounded like a pretty good deal. Sounded fair enough. So on February 6th, 1840, more than 40 Maori chiefs signed the treaty. And many sources say that Honehiki was actually the first one to put a signature on there, which is a pretty big statement. But it didn't take too long for him to change his mind about that. Honehiki became pretty unhappy with his new neighbors, the British, soon enough. There were a few things that he was upset about. First and foremost, the way the land deal worked, only the queen, meaning the government, not actually the queen herself, had exclusive rights to buy and sell land in the area. And so that was the way it was on paper, at least. But in actuality, the demand for land continued to get greater as more white settlers moved in. And sometimes illegal deals were made or the colonials just flat out occupied Maori land, which caused a lot of trouble, as you might imagine. So another thing they were upset about here was that the Maori land that the colonial government did manage to sell was often sold at a big profit. So obviously none of that profit went to the Maori people. It went to the government. So it didn't really work out in their favor. Yeah, so it's apparent this is a false treaty. They don't really have land interests, and they don't really have full rights as British subjects. So that was just the land portion of things. But by 1844, in the township of Kororeka, Hanheke had yet another complaint. Before the British showed up, he had been levying this toll on all the ships coming into the Bay of Islands. But Governor Robert Fitzroy, once he was in the picture, he introduced his own customs duties and regulations. And this had two effects. It deprived Hanahike of his income, and it also increased the cost of living for his tribe. So bad news all around. Then the final straw, a former slave of Hanahike's, who was at the time married to a white shopkeeper, was overheard calling Hanahike a pig's head while she was bathing in the bay with some other women. And this was considered a really, like, a bad curse to the Ma- by Maori standards. Yeah, now it's personal. So Honeheke gets furious, and he comes to the township with some of his warriors on July 5th, 1844, loots the shopkeeper's store, carries off the wife. I want to know what he did with her. I just keep reading everywhere that he carried off the wife, I but I want to know where <laughs> I was curious about went. that, too. That meant exactly. Um, but after he did that, so, I mean, at, at that point, it's just this personal, pretty major affront to the shopkeeper and his wife. But after that, in this symbolic act of resistance against the British, Honehiki chops down the Union flag flying over Maiki Hill. And 
some people say that it was really one of his followers who did this because Honohiki was so close to Williams, the missionary who had been this father figure to him, and Williams had made him promise that he wouldn't do something as dastardly as chopping down the flag, but we're not really sure who did the chopping here. Yeah, there's some conflicting accounts of that. What we do know is that after this happened, Fitzroy heads over with some reinforcements that he borrows from New South Wales because he didn't have that many troops of his own at that time in the area, and he meets with all of the Maori chiefs that are around there. Some of the chiefs aren't really happy with Hanaheke's actions either. They aren't really happy with the way that he went about things. Um, one of them, in particular, was Tamati Wakanene. He he and Hanaheke kind of have some tensions throughout this whole thing, so it's not surprising to see here that he, he disagrees with the way he went about this, but they do explain where Hanaheke was coming from, and some concessions are made on both sides at this point. The governor agrees to abolish customs duties, and Hanaheke, for his part, he offers to replace the flagstaff. At this point, he's acting reticent, but we have to wonder, is it really genuine? Yeah, does he really mean to replace that flagstaff? He does. He does end up doing that, but it soon becomes apparent that Hanheke's fears have not been totally allayed. He's still worried about the growing number of colonists in the area, and because of that, he ends up chopping down the flagstaff again. Chopping down the new flagstaff. Chopping down the new flagstaff, which he supposedly erected himself. So. January 9th, 1845, he chops that flagstaff down. And then again on January 19th, he chops it down again because they put it back up. Hey, we're we're at the anniversary, aren't we? Just a few days ago. I think we are. Anniversary of the third chopping. We didn't even do anything to celebrate. We didn't. I I don't think we have a flag around here, so. (laughs) Put something on Twitter. Definitely. So. At this point, the governor, he realizes Hanheke is just going to keep on taking the flag down as many times as he puts it up. And it's a really bad statement to the to the British settlers who are in the area. So he sends a few soldiers and sailors to guard the flagstaff, and they have some serious weapons with them. So they're, I mean, they're taking this pretty seriously. And Hanaheke is taking it seriously, too, though. In March, he brings 200 warriors in the dead of night to ambush Maiki Hill. And at the same time, more of his tribe's warriors are making this diversionary attack on the township. So by March 11th, Honohiki cuts the flag down for the fourth and final time. So, I mean, this is, this is kind of unbelievable that the British have managed to let it be cut down four times and that Honohiki has managed to make it through four times. Yeah. I mean, he, well, he's got some serious, firepower and help behind him and the fighting is going on full force at this point. In the midst of it though there are a couple things that happen as they're going at each other. Heke holds up a white flag to cease fighting at one point so both sides can bury their dead. As you'll see he does this semi-frequently throughout the the war um, in various battles so he definitely is respectful of various cultures burial rites, especially Christian burial rites. And the other thing that happens, a little more dramatic, is that there's an accident in the township's powder magazine, which causes it to explode. You might think it's a little coincidental that this happens to happen. Well, you might think that it's a little coincidental that this happens while there's a battle going on. I definitely did. But it turns out that most historians do actually think that it was an accident. So at this point, the town has to be evacuated. All the white settlers are put on a ship and depart that way. And after this, the tribe starts looting and burning the town. However, 
Hanaheke orders that they leave the property of the Anglican Church and House, the Roman Catholic Bishop's House, and the Roman Catholic Missions alone. So Again, these acts of civility we mentioned earlier. Yeah, I read somewhere that he actually sort of drew a line on the south end of town and nothing beyond that was allowed to be touched. Don't cross it, guys. Yep. So at this point, the Ingapue tribe of Honeheke and the British are at full-on war. And then some of the other Maoris, those who are friendly to the British, they're called Kupapas. Um, among them is Wakanene, who we mentioned earlier. They join up with that side, and the war continued. So it's Maori against Maori, as well as British. Um, the war continues throughout the next year, and it basically consisted of a handful of isolated battles that took place around Paws. And a Paw is kind of an interesting... Um, defensive Maori fort, like a stockade earthwork that was really quite effective for how it was constructed. Um, one example at Oheowai was an oblong-shaped paw on really high ground, basically a maze of these skillfully dug trenches and palisades that were all covered by thick sheets of flax to absorb the shot. So that's sort of the interesting part, the part that makes it stand out. Um, and when the British fought the Maori here in the summer of 1845, they weren't able to make any headway with their heavy arsenal. Any damage they did, the Maori would just repair at night because it was so, it seemed lightweight, but it could deflect pretty easily and it was easy to repair. And so when the British tried to just attack head on, the entrenched Maoris would cut them down with their muskets and their shotguns, um, a very effective defense building. Yeah, I guess they had the depth advantage, you know, being entrenched trenches, and, yeah. and uh, were able to but some coverage too. Yeah, but some coverage, definitely. In this particular battle, though, Hanaheke was actually out of commission. He was injured, but the Maori still managed to follow his example of allowing the British a chance to collect and bury their dead. And this was a significant defeat for the British. After Afterward, after the defeat, they replaced Fitzroy with Governor George Gray. And since Heke couldn't fight, he wrote letters to Gray demanding that Maori rights be respected. And here's just part of one letter that's pretty well known. And I quote... God made this country for us. It cannot be sliced. If it were a whale, it might be sliced. Do you return to your own country, which was made by God for you? God made this land for us. It is not for any stranger or foreign nation to meddle with this sacred country. So Gray, he put forth some armistice terms, but both Heke and his ally, Kawiti, rejected. Finally, everything came to a head on January 11th, 1846. Once again, the two sides had been fighting, but... The British side had had trouble penetrating Heke's paw, as usual. The paw was just so, I mean, that's how the series of battles kind of went throughout this whole war, is, you know, traveling from one paw to another and attacking, and they just had trouble getting through. But they hit a stroke of luck on this particular day because it was a Sunday. And as we know, Heke was Christian, and many of the Maori who were fighting for him were also Christian. So the story that's generally accepted here is that Heke, or perhaps Kawiti, we're not sure which one, different accounts have different ones as the instigator here, but one of them led a bunch of warriors out for a church service in a nearby valley, and they left the paw virtually unprotected when they did this. So when Gray's Kupafa allies heard them singing hymns out in this valley, he seized the moment to attack, killed off several Maori, and drove the rest of them off. So this is a pretty bleak picture of 
Britain here if they're attacking while the <laughs> Maoris are off. <laughs> they weren't in services. church, were they? No. Um, and you were mentioning earlier that people have different accounts of that, too, whether there was some other reason for them to to be leaving the paw, maybe to get food. But Yeah, there are some historians that think that they might have left for another reason and that it might have been unlikely that they would have just left for church. But I think it makes a good story to does, think that. It does yeah. make a good story, and it does seem... Uh, it does seem within the character of Hone Heke to to do that, to to think about attending services in the middle of battle, essentially. It does. So after this, Gray makes peace with Hanaheke and the other rebel chiefs through an intermediary, Nene, and Gray pardons the chiefs at this point. He doesn't insist on confiscating their land. So really, things kind of work out kind of neatly there. Uh, they don't really get any harsh punishment that we know of. Yeah, even though they're technically defeated. And interestingly, Heke's status didn't really diminish much either. He kept on writing letters, hoping that Britain would continue to honor the treaty, or rather finally start honoring the treaty. And he eventually died of tuberculosis on August 6, 1850, which is another surprise in this podcast. You're expecting this leader of a rebellion to die in war, die in war or, or be executed or be imprisoned or something. But tuberculosis. Um, but the uh, tensions don't really stop there. No, they don't. Hanaheke's rebellion is really just the beginning. It just sets the stage for another longer war that begins in 1860. And this war is known as the New Zealand Wars. Sometimes it's called the Land Wars or the Maori Wars, but it just starts a new chapter. So I think we're probably going to end there, just in case there are some other stories that we want to tell from there in the future. There's some other interesting characters involved that you guys might want to hear about. So we'll save that. Definitely. So I think that about wraps it up for now for the Maori, and it brings us to listener mail. This letter is from Jana in Newfoundland, and she says, Hello, Sarah and Dublina. You mentioned mumming in your Oliver Cromwell podcast. Well, I'm from Newfoundland and Labrador in Canada, where we have many small towns with old traditions that we still do today. We still, every Christmas, go out mumming. We dress up with silly clothing on, often with rubber boots, underwear on over our clothing, and a pillowcases over our heads. Then we go door to door and have people guess who the dressed up people are. Mummers who are over legal age get to drink liquor, and under age get to drink a thick, sweet drink of raspberry syrup and water. Mummers also usually have a dance or a jig with the people in the house. It's wonderful fun and something I love every year. There's also a song written by a Newfoundler about the tradition that I will post on your Facebook wall. So I haven't noticed that yet, but we'll have to check for that, Sarah. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting. We got so many emails about mumming. We did. A lot from the Philadelphia area, I think. Yeah, so you're right. The, alive is, the tradition is still alive and kicking. Definitely. Um, well, I guess that about wraps it up. If you want to, I don't know, share any more mumming stories you might have or contribute anything else to our discussion of the Maori, you can find us on Twitter at Missed in History, on Facebook, and uh, through good old email at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. Yeah, and if you want to find out more about the Maori, as Sarah mentioned earlier, we have How the Maori Works on our website. You can look it up by typing Maori on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. page.
The House Network's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.